0: Welcome to this episode of The Postscript. This week we have Pastor Greg Axe with us, uh, the professor of church history here at Living Faith Bible Institute. and We're going to be having a conversation just about uh, how the first few centuries of Christian history unfolded. It's going to be a very fun and exciting conversation, so we're glad you're here with us. Let's get right into it. Pastor Greg Axe, so many people probably only know you through the LFBI streaming screen, right? And uh, and they don't know you you personally. Okay. They see you you're, you're, you you t- you're kind of a stoic figure in Living Faith Fellowship, right. and uh, and so I want to give people an opportunity just to get to know you. Can you share with us just how you came to Christ and and what your well, Christian life has been like?
1: We were raised at Catholic at in our house, and uh, my brother, uh, my older brother. Um, met a baptist girl and fell in love with her and with her and of course one thing leads to another she violated the word of god by dating him and then i got saved okay that's the <laughs> short story of it, behind it but uh, the longer story is that uh, i went up to visit him over labor day weekend in 1978 and uh, we uh, ended up playing golf together for a while and he took out the bible that night began to show me some things in the word of god that we had never seen before and uh, argued with him for about three hours and because i'm a that kind of guy, and uh, I'll argue anything, anytime, anywhere with anybody. Uh, and then finally, he uh, showed me what the word of God said about you know our religion versus what the Bible actually says, and uh, received Christ my Savior that night. It's been 41 years ago. Wow! This Labor Day. So,
0: so when you were young, what was what was the biggest hurdle for you? I mean, in terms of changing your perspective, like how what was that jump like from thinking in terms of a of a catholic salvation perspective versus the, like what was it how what was it well like? i i had a uh,
1: an advantage in this regard in that i've always been skeptical and uh, um cynical to a point so i saw the catholic church and the never-ending ceremony and the things that made no sense and just the the things that were going on with that and i thought That that, that's just nonsense. If if that's God, there is no God. Mm. By the time I was old enough that my dad could not grab me by the ear and drag me to church, 14, 15 or so, I kind of just backed off and and rebelled against uh, anything to do with God or church at all. Mm. And so I had about a 10-year gap. I got saved at 25. So about a 10-year gap of just being practical atheist. Mm. So my rebellion against the Catholic Church was already firmly set. Uh, And it wasn't um, where, uh, typically when you share your faith with a a Catholic, he's going to fight and rebel because he's hooked to his institution. I already broke from that institution 10 years earlier. Mm -hmm. So for my brother to sit down and talk with me from the Bible and to say, hey, here's what the Bible actually says. Here's what we were taught when we were growing up, which we knew was tomfoolery and then now here's what the Bible says, it was a little easier jump for me. I didn't have to fight against my Catholic stronghold because mm. I had broken that years earlier.
0: Mm, okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah so um, so in terms of uh, salvation to now, mm-hmm. you've got 41 years of following Christ, and, and in that time, It's funny because before you didn't even want anything to do with church. And now you're teaching church history. How did we get to a place where you were so fascinated with church history that that you began studying it? How did you get to a place where you were really interested in the history of Well,
1: I was kind of pressed into service on that um, 20-some years ago um, to teach church church history. I'd been through it once in the Bible Institute we had in the other church. And I thought, okay, well, this is kind of interesting stuff. And being raised Catholic, I saw some of the things that were in there. And then I got pressed into service on that and um, it it just um, I began to do a little bit of research on some of the names and dates and figures and facts and stuff like that. And as I began to do that, I saw some patterns develop of what took place during the times of history. Uh, Knowing that the Bible has for us those seven ages of church history in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and I started reading people's books on this and nobody was reporting from that perspective. And it's like, why don't why doesn't anybody report from this perspective? I don't get this. A uh, few guys would acknowledge that, yes, you know, there's seven ages of church history from Revelation 2 and 3, and they would just move on and start throwing names and dates at people.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I thought, that's that's what I hated about history, is that you you know, you'd know sit in a class and somebody would just make you memorize how this name is spelled right. and what the dates were behind it. It's like, who cares? When am I going to reuse this outside of this class? I'm going to cram for this test, and I'm going to walk out the door and forget yeah, it. Right. Um, and there was no perspective behind it. So as I began researching 25 years ago, some of those uh, events of history and in watching the movements take place in there of here's what happened and here's what was, else was going on at that time and here's some of the spiritual things behind it uh, from the perspective of the Bible. and It just started, the lights started coming right. on yeah. and it made it interesting for me not to bore people to death with names, dates, facts, figures of of all that, but to give some perspective behind why these things happen Mm -hmm. so that we could have, so the history can actually teach us something. History is supposed to teach us something, isn't it?
0: Yeah, right. And I think that gives us a good opportunity to talk about your book. Um, So what you've been teaching for the last 20 years is now in book form, and I think your book is really unique. Um, it's uh, Church History, A Biblical Perspective by Greg Axe. Um, and this is the required reading for the church yeah, history in, right. in class in LFBI. But you know, the, the really interesting thing uh, compared to other church history books that I've I've read is this idea uh, of the, the church ages. And, and so you begin uh, first by laying out the principles yeah. of history. Yeah. And then you go into the church ages and you use that as kind of a template. So maybe first, let's talk about the principles that you lay at the principles of studying history from a biblical perspective. Why is that so important uh, for a Christian to have that in their wheelhouse?
1: Well, because God is the author of history and it's his story. So he authors the principles of how mankind is going to function during life. And the history of mankind is, is defined for us in the Bible. So we have perspective given to us in the Word of God, but yet what happens is you pick up anybody else's church history book um, and they will just dive immediately into whatever time period they're dealing with.
0: Into the narrative.
1: Yeah, and here's the facts. Sure. Okay, well the facts are important, but what's more important is how God is behind those facts and how the enemy moves behind those facts as well and what's going on so that we get perspective of why we're dealing with those Mm -hmm. things. So, yeah, that's one one of the things that's unique about the way that I approach that is that we begin by talking about, here's principles of life from the Word of God that govern what's happening in history. Mm-hmm. And, oh, by the way, you're part of history. Right. So yeah. when you turn on the television today, yeah. when you read a newspaper today, you're watching history unfold, and the same principles that were in Martin Luther's life and Paul's life and the Pope's life are in your life.
0: Yeah, well. and I think that's one of the really important things about the book is that yeah
1: it contextualizes
0: uh, our, our ministry life and it places us within, within the narrative of history. So, so you're not so far removed. When you're reading these books, these, these church history books, um, or you're listening to these lectures, a lot of times it seems so far removed uh, from where we're at now. And it makes it really difficult to find where we, f- we fit. And so I think uh, the principles in the book really help us guide when we look at history we can see it from a past, present, and future perspective using the principles that you give. What are some of the principles that you think are like crucial? Maybe you can share a few with us just to get an idea of like what some of the principles that you think are important.
1: Well, I think one of them is that, um, um, that great men are not always wise. And that's a verse in the Bible, Job 32 verse 9, great men are not always wise. So you look at there's great men in this world and women that have accomplished things that you and I will never in a lifetime accomplish. Uh, and they're held up as great people, and some of them actually are in, in God's eyes, and some of them, are just they think they're great, like Constantine the Great sure. thought he was great, but he wasn't. Yeah, we'll get in to In God's him. eyes. Yeah, we'll get to him. <laughs> um, but great men are not always wise. And so we glom on sometimes to a figure in history or even in our own personal lives that we uh, appreciate and like and respect even now, Mm-hmm. And we just dive in fully without backing off for a minute going, wait a minute, that guy doesn't always have the, the answers, neither do I, neither do you, neither does anybody. Okay? The answer is all found in the Word of God. Uh, another principle that I think is really uh, important is that I teach is, is this, that any record of history is subject to the view of the historian. Mm-hmm. In other words, you read something that somebody wrote and it's true to him, From his perspective. From his bias. Okay. His facts may be true, but everybody has facts and opinions in anything that they produce. So I do, we all do. We all have a perspective, we all have a worldview, we all have opinions. Uh, I say this opinions are like armpits. Everybody has them, they usually stink. Mm -hmm. So. You have to know what this guy's opinion is. You have to know what his worldview is. You have to know what his perspective is to per, to be able to analyze the facts that he's given to you because within those facts are his own opinions. Um, so example, you turn on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or read a newspaper or whatever, you're getting facts, kind of the same ones for the most part, but you're getting different spins on them based upon the perspective of the individual giving you that information. Right. Right, right. So if you pick up a history book or you read the news today. You have to know what the the view of that individual is so that you can filter what he's telling you through that prism. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, then you're just gonna buy what he tells you right. or reject what he tells you. Which is super in important. I think yeah. in, a, in, a, in a education system like we have here in America,
0: we're so often asked to just take things at the, at the face value. This is my instructor. Uh, you know, I'm in ninth grade history class. This is my instructor. Whatever they tell, tell me is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at that with the assumption that it's reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's undertones. There's coding in everyone's language. Yeah. And, and we find ourselves uh, victims of that coding. And it, and it forms our worldview. It forms our perspective. And things get lost, particularly when we're talking about biblical ideas, right? Yeah. Uh, things get lost, uh, things that God wants us to know or, or seeing things from His perspective. Uh, they get lost along the way.
1: Right. So somebody says Constantine the Great, the first Christian emperor. Mm -hmm. Well, that's his perspective. That's his opinion. That's his worldview of that man's Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. I look at a worldview differently um, because I have a Bible, first of all, and I analyze the same facts and come out with a different conclusion because of the facts that I start with, my perspective is yeah, we start Bible first.
0: Right, Bible first,
1: yeah. yeah. And so you've got 30 of these principles.
0: Yeah. And uh, and and the great thing about it is, is for me, when I first took the class and read the book, a lot of them seemed obvious. Like, oh my gosh, I've been doing that for a while. I actually yeah. had been reading that way. But then there were some that were really... Um, Eye-opening, and uh, particularly this idea of history as the as a as a chess match, yes. you know, between Satan and God. And I think a lot of times we want to, as Christians, we want to see and think in terms of God always. Uh, Always playing the card exactly the way that that we want him to. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: And so, but but God allows things to happen, and He allows mm-hmm. Satan to make moves. And there's this there's a there's a historical uh, narrative of of of, a, of this chess match or this great battle between God and Satan. Describe that a little bit, maybe.
1: Okay. It, it begins right at the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Who mm-hmm. moved? God did. Yeah. And earth not form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep. Well, God is not the author of darkness. The Prince of Darkness is. So he moved. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. There's God moving again. And so right in the first two verses of the Bible, you've got the God, Satan God mm-hmm. movements that are taking place there. And we can pers- when we back up for a minute and watch the events unfold in front of us, you can see um, movements, like that, as to what is taking place and who is behind it mm. uh, in, in the great chess match. Mm. And that's basically what it is. And I don't mean to, to make that sound like we are inanimate because I make the point through the course that this is an incredibly intensely complicated and complex chess sure. match. Right. Um, but we are the chess pieces mm-hmm. with animate life and free will to be able to move on our own individually sure. Right. Or collectively, and sometimes it's difficult to see what's moving because the combatants, God and Satan, are not gentlemen with each other. They're mm-hmm. just moving constantly, sure. and, and, and there's always that backdrop to what is happening in history. So you see airplanes fly into buildings. You mm-hmm. see uh, nations rise and fall. You see uh, religions start. Who moves? in those cases. The history of what happened is not necessarily as important as the history of why happened. You got to know the what, yeah, but you want to know the why behind it right. too.
0: And sometimes the why, I think you make this point too, sometimes the why we can't always have the answer to the why. Sometimes right. it's complicated. Right. Who, who moved here? Yes. You know, was this, a, was this God determining that this needed to be true? Is this Satan's counter move to something else? And so, yeah. Uh, I think it's really important as Christians too to understand that we don't always need the answer why. Right. Uh, we just need to be prepared that that's and to know that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. That, that God and Satan are constantly at work until until this grand story comes to a close. Exactly. Right? And God
1: always has our best interests at heart, even when it looks like the other way around. I right. mean, a classic example of that is the Book of Job. i are not going to go into long detail of it. There's a conversation that takes place in heaven that Job is oblivious to. Hey, have you considered my servant Job? Well, let me add him and I'll get him. God says, well, you go ahead. So you have a God versus Satan chess match going on in heaven and a conversation that Job is oblivious to. Mm-hmm. And Job is going along life merrily his own, having a great time. He's a wealthy man. He's got a great family. Uh, he's a very respected man. And all of a sudden he loses everything he has in a, in a, in a week's time. Mm. and he's suffering in uh, uh, unspeakable um, um, tragedy. His wife turns against him, his three friends show up, and start accusing him of all sorts of things. And throughout that entire dialogue in the book of of Job, he's asking the question, why is all this happening to me? And he can't see it Mm -hmm. until the end of the book of Job, when God says, okay, let me show you. Yeah. And, And
0: I think it's really interesting there too, because even in the midst of that story, there's a lot of free will happening. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, there's a lot of, of character development and, and uh, dialogue and, and faith positions that are, that are moving and shifting mm-hmm. in Job's life and his friend's life. And, and you can see that, that those people are very consequential, that mm-hmm. God cares about their perspectives mm-hmm. and that He includes a lot of that dialogue, that free will is really important to God. Yet at the same time, there are things that are determined beforehand. Yes. And the two things are happening simultaneously. Yes,
1: and it's the movement of the of of God and Satan behind the scenes that they can't see mm-hmm. that is governing the big p- picture of the story, and and then the details fit yeah. in after that. That's really fascinating. Yeah. So then, in in, in church history,
0: then you you've got a whole other section to the book, and I think this is the part that I think that sets your book apart even more, is the idea that you're breaking down church history. Uh, from the first century uh, really to to today Today, uh, based on what we learn from Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and we don't really see this in any other church history books that I've ever read so maybe explain that concept a little bit.
1: Now there's a few authors that acknowledge the fact that Revelation 2 and 3 gives you a framework of history Um, and then they write their books in 20, 30, 40 different chapters or whatever Um, and so I I determined that when I was going to teach this course, when I was going to write this book, that I was going to write it in seven chapters. Mm. Uh, and, And not only just write it in seven chapters, but take those time periods that are easily identifiable now with the perspective that we have. In the year 2019, looking back on church history, it's a lot easier to see this. Uh, if you were living in 400 AD, it wouldn't be as easy to see the the framework of Revelation 2 and 3 as it is today. Right. Uh, now that we can see it, I look back on it and not just divide it in seven groups and say, okay, or there's the time frame, now here's what went on but to report it from the perspective of what's actually said in those sections. For example, the age of Pergamus is talked about and then the name means much marriage. And that's the time in which Constantine uh, takes over the church and it marries with the world. Mm-hmm. So I report the events of that time period based upon the template of a marriage. Mm. You have courtship, you have engagement, You have a wedding ceremony, you have consummation, you have honeymoon, you have children. And I wrote the book from that perspective, Mm -hmm. dealing with that. Uh, Age of um, Thyatira is the superstition of the church and how um, the Roman Catholic Church stole the kingdom of Israel and it implemented it Mm -hmm. through their church. So there's a story in the Old Testament of Jezebel which is mentioned in the passage of how she stole the vineyard of Naboth. And I use that as the template for reporting what happened during that particular age. Mm -hmm. But it's very clear when John writes the book of Revelation, God gave him a template for it. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, the things which shall be hereafter from the perspective of the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. So here's what you have, church history, seven ages, and it breaks down perfectly.
0: Yeah, And I think one of the things that I realized in looking at that, is that, is that what we can see is that each age of the church is a, basically what, from what we read in Revelation, is a caricature of what we see in a, in a certain time frame. And so if someone was as unfamiliar with this concept, is that, that you basically overlay the, the, these different churches that uh, Christ is speaking to in Revelation 2 and 3, and then you overlay them over sections of history that are defined based on those those caricatures that yep. are laid out, mm-hmm. and um, and those aren't always neat. Those aren't always tidy, right. uh, but they do work. Mm-hmm. They do function over over ages, uh, sometimes centuries of history, and uh, and then you teach from that perspective, a biblical perspective first, and then you take then you m- use that as the lens in which you look at history. And I think that that's that's really fascinating. I want to thank you for joining us this week on The Postscript. We had a great conversation today just about the principles of studying history from a biblical perspective. Uh, Hopefully that was fascinating to you. If it was, join us next week as we get more into uh, specific history and we talk about the second century believers. Thanks for joining us.